0: as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode.
1: And we're almost as wide-ranging as the far more famous charter sealed at Runnymede. THE PROVISIONS ALLOWED FOR FOUR knights IN EACH COUNTY TO INVESTIGATE ABUSES BY ROYAL OFFICIALS, AND ESTABLISHED A PANEL OF TWENTY-FOUR TO OVERSEE GOVERNMENT OF THE REALM. HUGH BIGGARD WAS APPOINTED justiciar BY THE MAGNATES, AND ALL THE MAJOR ROYAL OFFICERS, FROM THE TREASURER AND CHANCELLOR TO THE SHERIFFS, BAILIFFS, escheators, AND CASTELLANS WHO EXERCISED ROYAL POWER IN THE SHIRES, WERE TO BE APPOINTED BY PARLIAMENT. On October eighteenth, twelve 1258, proclamations were sent in the King's name to the people of England and the King's subjects in Ireland, telling them of the new order that had been established and their duty to obey it. The knights who had assembled at Oxford never made it to Wales as the war there was abandoned. That this was a national programme of reform was emphasised by the fact that the proclamations were written in French, Latin, and English, declaring, Know ye all well that we will and grant that that which all our counsellors, or the greater part of them, that were chosen by us and by the community of our kingdom, have done and shall do for the glory of God and in loyalty to us, for the benefit of the country in the judgment of the aforesaid counsellors, be firm and lasting in all things, always, without end. If any man or men oppose, we will and command that all our loyal subjects hold them deadly foes. A further proclamation confirming the procedure by which the four knights of each shire appointed under the provisions of Oxford should go about the business of investigating corruption by royal officials followed two days later. Both these proclamations were in Henry's name, but the reality was that government had been removed from his hands. His barons, backed by the knights who had forced their own interests into the provisions, were now firmly in charge. Henry's friends were expelled from the country, and for the next three years government proceeded by the rule of the magnate council, with baronial envoys taking over the negotiations for peace in Wales and France, and attempting to persuade the Pope to forget the whole sorry Sicilian business. Simon de Montfort came to the fore as an abrasive voice in the centre of politics, not quite a regent, but the dominant voice in the new regime. Henry, as he tended to do in moments of crisis, disappeared into religious devotion. After Oxford he toured his favourite shrines at St. Albans, Bury St. Edmunds, and Waltham Abbey, mourning his beloved three-year-old daughter Catherine, who, having been born severely disabled, had died the previous year. In the King's absence, baronial reform continued apace. The provisions of Westminster, issued in October 1259, laid down a far-reaching program of reform in law and government, and set the schedule for an heir to systematically investigate abuses by royal officials. By the end of 1259, Henry had been reduced to a dithering irrelevance. On December fourth, 1259, A 52-year-old Henry III knelt amid the gnarled trunks and wind-stripped branches of the apple-trees in the orchard of Louis IX's luxurious Parisian palace. Before him stood the French king, seven years younger, the saintliest monarch in Europe. The two deeply devout men were about to transact one of the most sacred acts of kingship. It had taken Henry a long time to reach Paris, "'and it might have taken him longer yet "'as he tried to stop at every church "'on the road to Paris "'in order to hear the Mass. "'Even Louis had tired "'of the English king's compulsive behaviour "'and had expedited his approach "'by having as many of the churches "'shut as possible. "'Seldom jovial, "'Henry III was now very solemn indeed. "'His council of barons "'had made a peace with France "'despite the obstructions of Simon de Montfort, "'who held a personal stake "'in continued hostilities,' and Lord Edward, who at twenty years old opposed any diminution of the crown's authority. The peace came with one mighty and onerous term. Henry was compelled to pay liege homage to Louis, renouncing once and for all his claims to empire, and acknowledging that he held his remaining lands as a peer of France, rather than as a king in his own right. English kings had paid forms of homage before, of course, Henry II had done so in the first stages of his conquest in 1156, in order to secure Louis VII's support against his rebellious brother Geoffrey, and John had paid homage for Normandy before becoming king, to strengthen his plot against Richard. But neither of those ceremonies had approached the one-sidedness of Henry III's submission. As the ceremony progressed, the Archbishop of Rouen read aloud the terms of the Treaty of Paris. His voice echoed around the orchard. Henry renounced all that remained of his claims to rule the lands that had been held by Henry II and Richard I, Normandy, Maine, Anjou, and Poitou. In the south he was to be confirmed only in his right to Gascony and his wife's interests farther inland, areas including the Saint-Ange and Agenais to the north and east of Bordeaux. In a hollow show of gratitude for his reduced status, Henry promised to pay Louis fifteen thousand marks, and to supply the French king with funds to support five hundred crusading knights for two years. Thus was the King of England accepted into the role of the French aristocracy, no longer a prince below God, but a duke below his lord, the French king. The party that gathered to witness this ceremony stood just a few hundred yards away from some of the holiest relics in the West. Saint chapelle held both the crown of thorns and a fragment of the true cross, but even the holiness and magnificence of the surroundings could not obscure the fact, as he knelt before the French king, that Henry was finally bringing to a close a great chapter of English kingship. Henry went to his grave believing himself to be a Norman and an Angevin, but the world could no longer pretend that English kings were connected in any meaningful sense to the cities of Le Mans and Angers, Rouen or Tours. Even the remaining slivers of the Duchy of Aquitaine, fiercely and proudly independent of France, were acknowledged to be a fiefdom. Henry's barons had seen to that. Geographically, politically, and feudally, in an orchard a few hundred yards from the True Cross, the Plantagenet Empire was finally pronounced dead. The trend across Europe over the course of the thirteenth century was of consolidation. Louis the ninth completed the work begun by his grandfather Philip the second, extending French sovereignty from Flanders to Toulouse. The fluid condition that had existed in the twelfth century now creaked into shape. The Sicily debacle illustrated that the age of Plantagenet dominion, when kingship and kinship stretched from Scotland to Outremer, was no longer affordable either financially or politically. England's horizons had narrowed. The Treaty of Paris was, in some senses, a result of the fundamental shift in the nature of royal rule that had evolved during the first forty-three years of Henry's reign. Frequent reissues of the Magna Carta and the Charter of the Forest, granted in return for funds to fight overseas, reset the boundaries and rules of kingship forming the basis for a new compact between Crown and political community over how the country should be ruled. It was a process propelled by Henry III's doomed and fanciful ambitions to reclaim his continental territories, which set him continuously at odds with his barons, codified in their ultimate act of legal rebellion the provisions of Oxford." What had once been a firmly hierarchical structure of monarchy and nobility became more of a partnership, in which kingship was knitted into the fabric of English governance, universal but beneath an increasingly abstract law, susceptible to correction by the political community if it strayed. Henry was described in many ways by his near contemporaries. He was flattered by Pope Alexander the Fourth in 1258 as Rex Christianissimus, a most Christian king, but it was Dante's description that stuck, vir simplex, a simple man. He projected himself with all pomp and magnificence as a glorious king, but in fact he was weak, a man with an eye for art, but no feel for politics, who was never able to operate successfully in rapidly changing times. His penchant for schemes beyond his talent for execution led him into dire financial and political trouble. Although surrounded by talented individuals, he was susceptible to taking the wrong advice from the wrong people at the wrong time. His lack of good sense and judgment meant that he was never able properly to extricate himself from the messes he landed himself in, and when crisis came, the Rex Christianissimus would generally disappear to tour his favorite shrines. Born without a father, abandoned by his mother, never able to grow up watching another king rule— All his life dominated by others, Henry was from the start a poor candidate for the crown, an office that required supreme self-belief as well as self-discipline. Oddly, when the occasion called for it, Henry could play the public part of High Priest immaculately and with apparent enjoyment. He understood the way kingship should look, even if he was at a loss to know how it should work. The gold coins produced in one of his great years of crisis summed it up, wildly inappropriate as currency they glittered with the image of henry as edward the confessor the embodiment of england's ancient monarchy and a national saint in the making they also attempted to rank english kingship alongside the majesty of the imperial crown which traded in gold augustales Henry thought big, and he created a cult of royalty manifested in stained glass and wall friezes, and the stunningly redeveloped palace and abbey at Westminster and countless royal houses, including the palace at Clarendon near Salisbury. Henry was an incredibly powerful propagandist for his dynasty. That was his most valuable legacy. Yet after 1259 in many ways he was irrelevant— He was old and broken, humiliated and overmatched by circumstance. As de Montfort and the barons attempted to rule in the king's name, the locus of royal power shifted gradually but inevitably from Henry to his twenty-year-old son, the aggressive, soldierly Lord Edward. Edward would not be king for more than a decade, but he was most decidedly the future of the Plantagenet family, if indeed that illustrious family was to have a future at all. THE BATTLE OF LEWIS Shortly after dawn on May fourteenth, twelve 1264, a small army stood in quiet array high on the downs outside the town of Lewis in Sussex. Their numbers were slight, but they were zealous. They had crept through thick woodland in the dead of night to claim their ground. Now they were prepared for that most unusual of medieval military engagements, a pitched battle. The army comprised just a few hundred cavalry, accompanied by several times that number of foot-soldiers and servants. As the morning sun climbed through the sky they looked down upon the enemy. It was far greater in number. Before them along a front that stretched the better part of a mile between Lewis Priory and the castle nearby was a royal army packed with more than one thousand armed knights, equipped as if for a Welsh invasion, attended by thousands of infantry and led by royal princes in foul and bloody mood hell-bent on vengeance against rebels who had defied royal rule for too long they had derided offers to negotiate the rebels could have peace they had said if they presented themselves with nooses around their necks ready for hanging the small rebel army was led by the fifty-six year old simon de montfort who, lame with a broken leg, had been wheeled to the battlefield on a cart. Six years on from the provisions of Oxford, de Montfort remained an implacable enemy of the King. In 1262 Henry had obtained a papal bull freeing him from the obligations of the provisions, and de Montfort had briefly left the realm, only to return in 1263, raising rebellion at the head of a baronial coalition, convinced that war was now the only way to force Henry III to govern according to the vision laid out at Oxford. Since then he had stoked the fires of anti-royal sentiment wherever he could. Now he surrounded himself with young aristocrats in awe of his military reputation and his willingness to take on a king whom hostile writers characterized as depraved, debauched, and ruinous to the kingdom the war had begun well and the rebels had succeeded in capturing much of southern england but in january the tide had turned toward the royalists henry and edward had summoned a powerful army in oxford and deployed it against de montfort's rebel forces in a series of sieges by easter royalist forces had squeezed the rebels out of everywhere but london now de montfort was preparing for a final showdown at lewis it was a desperate move No pitched battle had been fought in England for nearly fifty years. In comparison with the staple tactical set pieces of siege and plunder, battles were wasteful, uncertain, and chaotic. So strenuously did medieval commanders avoid them that few if any of the knights on either side had ever fought in one. But with two armies facing each other on the edge of the downs it was clear that a moment of reckoning had been reached. De Montfort's men, with white crosses pinned to their clothing, were zealous, the mood in the royal camp was vigorous and uncompromising, a reflection in part of the spirit of its leader, Edward. In the six years since rebellion against his father had broken out, Lord Edward, who was just under a month short of his twenty-fifth birthday, had seen more than his share of violence and difficulty. He had watched his father writhe against De Montfort's attempts to shackle and reform the crown— and had seen him suffer the disintegration of his royal prerogative as the opposition barons, aiming to control the royal household and persecute members of the royal family whose influence they judged pernicious, forced legislation upon him. Edward had frequently changed his position with regard to reform. In 1258, he had sided with his Lusignan relatives. The following year, he had allied with the reform party. Between 1260 and 1263 he had flipped his allegiance another three times, but by 1264 Edward was a die-hard loyalist. Edward's view of his enemies was broadly captured by the writer of the Song of Lewis, who noted that under de Montfort's influence, the degenerate race of the English, which used to serve, inverting the natural order of things, ruled over the king and his children, A letter sent in Edward's name to de Montfort's army on the day before the battle accused the Earl of being a perfidious traitor, the falsehood of yourself, and promised the rebels that from this time forward we will, with all our mind and our strength, wheresoever we shall have the means of doing so, do our utmost to inflict injury upon your persons and your possessions. Surrounded by the warlike marcher-lords, hard-bitten barons from the Welsh borders, whom he had befriended during his youth, Edward took command of the division on the right flank of the army, which stood before Lewis Castle, where he had been lodging. His uncle, Richard, Earl of Cornwall, who had returned to England following a collapse in his position as King of the Germans, was at the head of the Central Division. Edward's father, the King, commanded the left flank before the Priory. Facing Edward's division stood a rebel band of Londoners. These were not fighting men. To Edward they were an unforgivable rabble who had gravely insulted his mother, the Queen, by pelting her with rubbish from the streets of the city the previous year. When battle began with an almighty roar, Edward's cavalry charged the Londoners. Edward led his charge with the aggression that characterized a seasoned horseman with a love of the melee. He had spent several years abroad during his youth competing in the fashionable tournaments held by the European aristocracy. Now the melee was real. Such was the strength of his attack that his men easily scattered the opposing division's cavalry, driving them back across the valley to the banks of the River Ouse. They caused havoc among the rebel lines, and proceeded to chase the routed Londoners for several miles across the Sussex countryside, killing and maiming all they could reach. By the time Edward's men regrouped and returned to the battlefield, it was past midday. Judging by their own success, they expected to see the rest of the rebels slaughtered or imprisoned. Instead, they gazed upon a scene of utter devastation for the royal cause. By leaving the lines to chase the rebels' left flank, Edward had tipped the scales of battle against the royal army. Henry's central division had been driven back by the charges of the rebels behind the walls of the priory. Richard, Earl of Cornwall, had pushed the division on the royalist left hard against the enemy— but on reaching high ground he had found himself surrounded and had been forced to take cover from his enemies in a windmill. Edward returned to the battlefield to hear raucous rebel songs and taunts being hurled toward his uncle in this makeshift castle, and to learn that his father was also surrounded and effectively defeated. The king's forces had suffered a humiliating defeat. The only pragmatic solution was a negotiated surrender, Indeed, de Montfort threatened to behead the captured aristocrats, including Richard, Earl of Cornwall, if such an agreement was not forthcoming. This was a token both of his seriousness and of the frightening degree to which English politics had disintegrated. No aristocrat had been executed in England since William I had beheaded Earl Waltheof in the eleventh century. In return for allowing Henry to remain free and titular king, a necessity for both sides in order to prevent a degeneration into total anarchy, de Montfort demanded that Edward and his cousin Henry of Ulmaine, eldest son of Richard, Earl of Cornwall, be handed over as prisoners. The peace that was hammered out on the day of the battle was known as the Mies of Lewis. The political terms reinstated in modified form the provisions of Oxford, and called for many of Edward's marcher-lord allies to appear before Parliament for judgment. Several political questions were deferred to French arbitration, and Edward and Henry of Almain went to prison. Henry remained king, but was no longer free to pick the staff of his own household. He was now more than at any time in his reign a puppet king. The power behind the throne lay not with a broad baronial coalition, but squarely in the hands of Simon de Montfort. From Imprisonment to Evesham. The year twelve sixty four was the lowest point thus far for the Plantagenet dynasty. After the Battle of Lewis, the king was taken to London at liberty but disempowered. Queen Eleanor was exiled, plotting unsuccessfully in France to raise an invasion force to retake the kingdom. Lord Edward, Henry of Almain, and Richard Earl of Cornwall were imprisoned under close guard at de Montfort's pleasure, first at Dover Castle, and subsequently in Wallingford. England remained unsettled, violent, and poorly ruled. Civil war continued to flare in the aftermath of Lewis, and the chronicles of the time teem with stories of burning countryside, castles besieged, and coasts guarded for fear of foreigners arriving to plunder the fractured land de Montfort did not, nor could he have been expected to, find the form of quasi-kingship thrust upon him a straightforward affair. He was a private lord attempting to take control of a public office. Although he controlled the king and the great seal, his mandate to govern came from the fact that he had defeated his own lord in battle. He was, by his very nature, a divisive figure. Edward had forged close personal bonds with the marcher lords, Men like Sir Roger Mortimer of Wigmore, Roger Clifford, and Roger Laybourne, and all were set implacably against de Montfort's rule. Their numbers soon began to swell as the angry young nobles who had fought with the Earl at Lewes slowly began to drift away. In the aftermath of victory they found that de Montfort's administration solved nothing. Government was just as partisan as, if not more so, than it had been when Henry was in league with the Lusignans whether in the name of imposing security or in the interest of aggrandizing his family, de Montfort divided the spoils of victory unfairly, awarding to himself and his two elder sons, Henry and Simon the Younger, lands, territories, and castles taken from the royal party. Most aggrieved by this was Gilbert de Clare, the twenty-year-old Earl of Gloucester. Clare had been deprived of his inheritance during the king's resurgence in 1262, which had driven him into rebellion with de Montfort. He had fought with tremendous distinction on the rebel side at Lewis, and was rewarded with a role in government that befitted the massive landed power that the Gloucester estates gave him throughout England. But he soon developed deep reservations about de Montfort's autocratic rule. He disapproved of his use of foreign knights, and he had particular reservations about keeping Edward in prison. De Montfort attempted to allay these concerns by releasing Edward from physical captivity in March 1265, but he did so with prohibitively onerous conditions. Edward was deprived of most of his royal lands which were grabbed by the de Montforts, and furthermore, although he was no longer to be locked in a castle cell, he remained sentenced to perpetual escort by de Montfort's son Henry. By the beginning of 1265 Gloucester and many others like him had begun to fear that the de Montforts had designs on far more than reform of the realm. They were thought now to be aiming at the crown itself. In February 1265 Gloucester left de Montfort's court and travelled west to his Welsh estates, claiming that they were being ravaged by Llewellyn ab Griffith. He refused to attend a tournament in April, and by the end of May it was clear that he had abandoned de Montfort's cause entirely, and had begun plotting with the loyal marcher lords to free Edward and advance the royalist cause. On May 28th Edward, who had been permitted visitors under the more relaxed conditions of his supervision order, went riding in Hereford at the heart of marcher country. He was accompanied as usual by his minder-cum-jailer, Henry de Montfort, but the group of knightly friends that joined him also included Gloucester's younger brother Thomas de Clare. Edward left for the expedition in a buoyant mood, as if all the problems that beset him lay lightly on his shoulders. As the young men rode, they began to play a game. Each was allowed to try out every horse to determine which of the animals was the fastest. As amusing a game as this was, it had a more practical purpose, it allowed Edward to find the mount best suited to a dash for freedom. When he found it, he lost no time. Digging his heels into its side, he shouted to his captors, "Lordings, I bid you good day. Greet my father well, and tell him I hope to see him soon, and release him from custody.' And with that he galloped expertly into the distance, accompanied by a handful of friends who were in on the plan. They picked up Sir Roger Mortimer, who was hiding in the woods nearby, Together they rode to Mortimer's castle at Wigmore, then on to Ludlow, where Edward met Gloucester, and swore to him that if they could rid the realm of de Montfort, he would restore good old laws, abolish evil customs, expel aliens from the realm, and entrust government to native Englishmen. This promise was almost exactly what the barons who had stormed into his father's presence at Westminster in 1258 had demanded. Finally Edward had found his middle ground. The accord between Edward and Gloucester formed the basis of a new royal coalition, composed of returned royalist exiles under William de Valence, and the marcher lords who had never seen de Montfort's rule as much more than another version of Hubert de Burgh's and Peter de Roche's grasping administrations. They would fight on their own territory, the marches. As de Montfort scrambled for an army to resist the resurgent royalists, Edward's men set up their defences. They destroyed every crossing to the Severn, limiting the field of battle by cutting off most of England and trapping de Montfort on the western Welsh bank. Throughout the summer a showdown loomed. De Montfort, who still held the king, was chased around Wales by Edward's army. He played for time, requesting foot soldiers from Llywelyn ap Griffith, while his son Simon raised a reinforcing cavalry from the east. But the de Montforts were on the defensive, Pursued by a coalition renewed in its vigour by the presence of the bellicose prince. On August 1st, the royalists attacked young Simon at Kenilworth. The army was billeted in the great Midlands fortress, while Simon himself lodged in the nearby priory. Believing that Edward's men were at a safe distance in Worcester, Simon's men were unprepared for attack they did not realize that Edward and Gloucester had spies among them, including a female transvestite called Margoth. At dawn, while Simon and his men were sleeping, or in Simon's case awake but not yet dressed, hooves sounded outside the priory. The young man saved his skin by rowing naked from the scene of the assault and taking refuge in the castle, but many of his knights showed no such improvisational common sense. They, along with their banners, were captured by the Royalists. When the elder de Montfort heard that his son's reinforcements had been attacked, he was shaken. A crisis was now imminent. There was a scramble to unite the two branches of the army, and to escape the territory in which they were penned. De Montfort finally found a place to ford the Seven, and pushed east toward Worcester. Edward's army was no more than a few miles away. On the night of August third, de Montfort moved once more, this time south to Evesham. The next day de Montfort's men paused for breakfast at Evesham Abbey, positioned in a loop of the River Avon. Above them the skies were dark and pregnant with rain, a thunderstorm was brewing. A lookout was stationed on the tower, watching through the gloom for the approach either of Edward or of the younger Simon's army. Three hours after dawn the cry went up from the ground. Simon the Younger's banners had been spotted in the distance. The day was saved. Or was it? From high in the tower the lookout shouted fatal news. This was not Simon approaching, but Edward's army, marching under the banners stolen at Kenilworth. De Montfort raced to the lookout tower to watch Edward's men approach, red crosses pinned to their armour in imitation of the white crosses worn by the rebel army at Lewis. Impressed by their discipline and the well-drilled advance, the Earl declared in typically grand style, "'By the arm of St. James they are advancing well. They have not learned that from themselves, but were taught it by me.' This was not simply the arrogance of a commander. De Montfort knew that he was outmanoeuvred. Escape was impossible. On the south bank of the Avon, Mortimer led a detachment that blocked escape via the bridge. Trapped in the river's loop, de Montfort's men watched as Edward's army moved into their positions, commanding the high ground of Green Hill to the north of the abbey. De Montfort's men faced the Royalists defiantly. They were outnumbered by three to one. Their only chance was to rely on the fact that they had the captive King Henry at the centre of their forces, and hope that this inspired some caution among Edward's men. Everything now came down to this. De Montfort and his men awaited the onslaught. They did not have to wait long. As the thunderclouds broke above them, and a violent storm drenched the battlefield, Edward's men attacked. Both sides fought conspicuously bravely in cold, soaking conditions. De Montfort threw himself into the fight with as much aggression as he had shown at any time during his long career, but the numbers, combined with the superior generalship of Edward and Gloucester, overwhelmed him. He watched as his young knights were dragged from their horses and stabbed to death. His son Henry was slaughtered, and his son Guy captured. The king, whose armour identified him as a Montfortian, was wounded in the fighting. He escaped death only by bellowing his name to the knight who would have killed him. There would be no reprieve for de Montfort himself. A twelve-man hit-squad, independent of Edward's main army, stalked the battlefield, their sole aim to find the earl and cut him down. In the end it was Roger Mortimer who found him and thrust his lance deep into the earl's neck, killing him where he stood. The body was then mutilated in sickening fashion. News reached the Mayor and Sheriffs of London that the head of the Earl of Leicester was severed from his body, and his testicles cut off and hung on either side of his nose, and in such guise the head was sent as a trophy to the wife of Sir Roger Mortimer at Wigmore Castle. His hands and feet were also cut off, and sent to divers places to enemies of his, as a great mark of dishonour to the deceased. The trunk of his body, and that only, was given for burial in the church of Evesham Abbey. Within weeks a rather improbable cult of sainthood had grown up around de Montfort's grave, and miracles stemming from both the earl's burial site and the battleground where he was slain were reported. At the end of the day the battlefield lay strewn with high-born cadavers, proud men lying dead in the summer rain. "'De Montfort, his son Henry, and key rebel allies "'such as Henry Dispenser, Ralph Bassett, and Peter de Montfort "'were all killed. "'Many more were captured and wounded. "'The King had been returned joyfully to his son Edward, "'and he was sent to recuperate in Gloucester and Marlborough castles, "'where he busied himself in typical fashion, restoring altar-plates. "'Power in England shifted toward yet another quasi-King.' This time, however, it was a prince of the blood royal. Lord Edward, who had for so long swung between the competing factions in England's mid-century crisis, now moved closer than ever before to the political centre. He was not king yet, nor was he even the dominant voice in English government, but the heir to the throne had proved himself, during the fourteen months that divided Lewis and Evesham, to be a pragmatic politician and a fierce soldier. THE Leopard. The young prince who moved into the spotlight in the 1260s was considered an enigma by many of his contemporaries. He had grown up in England and had been intimately involved in the political turmoil of his father's reign. While some men thought he had performed with valour, others considered him an odious, treacherous turncoat. Matthew Parris wrote that Edward was a man of lofty stature, of great courage and daring, and strong beyond measure. But there were also notorious stories of a foolish youth, whose supporters invaded priories at Wallingford and Southwark without permission, mutilated strangers they passed by the road, and stole food from the ordinary people of England, a prince who was glamorous and fond of the tournament, but by instincts frivolous and cruel. Edward was physically very striking, Although he had been a sickly child, as an adult he stood a head above his fellow men at six feet two inches, it is clear why he was later nicknamed Longshanks by the Scots. He was broad-chested and powerful, his physique a testament to many long hours spent on the tournament field, where he had competed since he was seventeen. Edward had been married at fifteen to Eleanor of Castile two years his junior, and proved to be both a virile father and a doting husband. In temperament he was a ferocious soldier, rather like his famous great-uncle Richard the Lionheart, whose image was painted all over the palaces and hunting-lodges of his childhood. He had blond hair, a droopy eyelid inherited from his father, and the plantagenet temper in perhaps its most potent form. It was said that in a fit of rage he once actually frightened a man to death. He had shown during his escape from the de Montforts and on the path to Evesham That he was an inspiring leader of men as well as a skilful and vengeful conqueror who would not hesitate to impose brutal violence on the vanquished. His reputation then was mighty, but not wholly enviable. Edward's slippery course through the political crises preceding the Barons' War had earned him a reputation as a shifty politician, yet the fact that he had flipped his allegiance numerous times in the struggles between his father's party and the reformers was less a reflection of duplicity than a statement of the profound confusion he had felt as a result of his closeness to both his mother's Savoyard relations and his father's Lusignan favorites. Nevertheless, it would not be easily forgotten. During the course of the war Edward had frequently broken his word in order to wrest political or military advantage. At the siege of Gloucester in 1264, a landmark engagement on the way to Evesham, He had relied on the chivalry of a surrounding rebel army to escape imprisonment, then promptly broken a sworn truce to hold the town's citizens to ransom. The young Edward was therefore known to both his supporters and his detractors not as a lion-heart, but as a leopard, fierce but changeable. A song written in praise of him around the time of his coronation described him as, "'Warlike as a pard, sweet as a spikenard.' and the author of the pro-de Montfort's Song of Lewis elaborated on the theme. He is a lion by his pride and ferocity, by his inconstancy and changeableness he is a pard, not holding steadily his word or promise, and excusing himself with fair words. The first demand placed on Edward following the victory at Evesham was to aid in the process of healing his father's divided realm. Evesham might have killed and scattered the de Montforts, But the realm was still in a state of civil war, and the role of men like Edward, his brother Edmund, and loyalists such as their cousin Henry of Almain, who had been sent abroad by his baronial jailers and therefore missed the Battle of Evesham, would be vital in re-establishing royal governance. Their task was not easy. Pockets of rebellion remained all over the country. In September 1265 Henry III made a highly divisive statement at a Winchester Parliament declaring that all Montfortian rebels were to be permanently disinherited, and their land distributed to men who had proved their loyalty to the crown. A student of his own family's history would have pointed Henry III toward his grandfather Henry II's contrasting efforts to cauterize the wounds of a divided kingdom in the 1150s, or the efforts at reconciliation after the great revolt of 1173 to 1174. Then the king had settled his troubled realms by offering justice, peace, and reconciliation to the barons who had defied him. Henry III now did the opposite. He refused to accommodate those who had rebelled. This ruined nearly three hundred families in a stroke. Rather than settle the realm, it merely encouraged disaffection among the losers and revenge among the royalists, which in turn prolonged the war against Henry's rule. Edward's part in the aftermath of Evesham was characteristically ambiguous. He had wept after the battle at the loss of so many lives, and in the days that followed he acted with clemency when leading Montfortians approached him begging not to be disinherited for their part in the rebellion. Yet despite his better instincts, when Henry III announced the terms of revenge, Edward and his supporters opened their arms for reward— and the prince was by his father's side for much of the questionable retribution that took place during the autumn of 1265. In London he accepted a share of the spoils when Henry ruthlessly dispossessed disloyal citizens, a number of Edward's supporters received rebels' confiscated houses, and Edward took custody of a valuable prisoner in the shape of the mayor. As land and property changed hands across England, many of the dispossessed rebels found themselves in the woods, "'living outdoors in guerrilla bands "'that would have resembled those "'from the popular ballads of Robin Hood. "'The main centre of Montfortian resistance "'was at Kenilworth Castle, "'but by Christmas 1265 "'pockets of revolt were breaking out all over England. "'Edward was kept on the move, "'helping snuff out the flames of resistance. "'The distressed rebels had come to be known as the Disinherited, "'and as Edward took charge of numerous operations against them, he came to realise that conciliation was a more powerful tool than sheer bloody-minded aggression. In December he found one group of rebels camped out in the marshlands of Axholme in Lincolnshire, and convinced them to surrender without bloodshed. Afterward he joined Roger Laybourne in subduing the Sink Ports, the collective name for five towns on England's southeastern coastline, Hastings, Sandwich, New Romney, Hythe, and Dover. Edward tempered his allies' capable but violent siegecraft with promises of pardons and liberty in exchange for submission. Unfortunately, Edward was swimming against a powerful tide, dragged by Henry III's misguided desire for revenge. By Easter, twelve sixty six, there were rebellions across a central belt of England, from East Anglia to the Midlands, and military action once again became the only feasible solution. Toward the end of May, at Alton Wood in Hampshire, Edward crowned a victory over a rebel band by fighting their leader, Adam Gurdon, an experienced knight, in single hand-to-hand combat. Although the political significance of this duel was limited, it became one of the more memorable events of the Civil War. The two men did battle in a forest clearing, watched by Edward's supporters, who were cut off from him behind a ditch. The tale of this glamorous fight was embellished during later years— and it was said that Edward had been so impressed with Gurdon's martial skill that he had given him favour and fortune once the fight was over. The truth is that Edward beat Gurdon into submission, hanged his rebellious friends, then gave the defeated knight to his mother the Queen, from whom Gurdon had to buy back his freedom and possessions at an onerous price. Slowly, though, the Royalists grew more secure, and by the middle of the summer they could make their advance on the great castle at Kenilworth, a vast fortress that had been fortified by King John and subsequently by Simon de Montfort, with the intention of making it impervious to siege-craft. It was defended by huge walls and fortifications, and a massive man-made lake, and garrisoned by more than one thousand men. Cracking the defences was likely to take months of dirty technical engineering work. Trebuchets and huge wooden siege-towers with gantries from which archers could fire were brought in, and the site, overseen by Edward's younger brother Edmund, teemed with miners and engineers. Special barges from Chester were used to try to storm the castle across its water defences, and the food-supplies of counties across the Midlands were severely drained, as the besiegers maintained a full feudal muster outside the fortress-walls yet it was an effort in which Edward the soldier had little part to play. He remained on duty stamping out isolated rebellions in East Anglia and enjoying the summer with his wife, who gave birth to their first boy on July 14th. The couple rather provocatively named the child John. After months of expensive, draining effort, it became clear that Kenilworth could only be starved into submission, a painful process that could take more than a year. With the disinherited still causing problems all over England, conciliatory tactics were once more foisted upon the royalists. The wisest political head among them was that of the papal legate Otto Buono, who alongside Henry of Almaine led a committee to produce a peace that would bring the rebels out from the stinking fortress and reconcile them with the royalists who had been awarded their lands and possessions. Together they produced the Dictum of Kenilworth. Set out in forty-one clauses, the dictum was formally addressed from England's leading loyalist bishops and barons to the King, the Realm, and the Holy Church. It defended the king's right to freely exercise his lordship, authority, and royal power without impediment or contradiction, but asked him to appoint such men to do justice and give judgment, as do not seek things for themselves, but things which are of God and justice. After the obligatory request that the king obey the Magna Carta and the Charter of the Forest, the dictum went on to set out the means by which the rebels who had followed de Montfort could be rehabilitated and restored to their lands, that the course to be followed is not disinheritance, but redemption. It allowed the disinherited to buy back their confiscated lands, or what portions of them they could afford, albeit at the severe rate of between five and seven times the land's value payable to the royalists who had been granted the land since confiscation. These were hardly generous terms, but they at least provided a mechanism for restoring peace. The dictum was given and made public in front of the castle walls on October 31, 1266. The garrison in the castle, dirty, freezing, and starving, surrendered in the middle of December. It was an important step toward peace, which had been achieved by consensus and negotiation rather than the bloody grind of military force. There was a brief moment of crisis in the spring when the Earl of Gloucester invaded London to protest the fact that the disinherited were being forced to pay their entire fines before they were allowed to enter into their confiscated properties. danger was averted thanks to the interventions of Otto Buono, who persuaded England's better-off barons to pay into a distress fund to assist the disinherited, and of Richard, Earl of Cornwall, who negotiated an amendment to the dictum of Kenilworth, allowing rebels to return to their lands at once rather than at the end of their terms of repayment. As Gloucester was persuaded to withdraw from the capital, and Henry made his way in, it was clear that the process of bringing peace to the kingdom had truly begun. With Henry and Edward now in a firmly conciliatory mood, the Dictum of Kenilworth was followed in September 1267 by the Treaty of Montgomery, which brought peace with Wales by conceding vast feudal power to Llywelyn ap Griffith. The Welsh prince had been allied with de Montfort, and had made great headway in establishing his power over Gwynedd during the turbulent years of the barons' wars. Rather than being forced into a humiliating peace, Llewelyn was now granted extensive control and territory in northwestern Wales, in return for a tribute of 25,000 marks. The price to Edward of this was immense, for it effectively gutted his personal power beyond the marches. This was a situation that he would take much trouble to reverse later in his reign, but for the sake of peace in 1267 he gritted his teeth and consented. Two months later the final plank of rehabilitation and reform was put in place when the Statute of Marlborough was issued, again with Edward's approval, if not his detailed involvement. The Statute was a vast and influential set of legal provisions touching on areas of government that had been under discussion since 1258. Marlborough recognised in its preamble that, The realm of England, oppressed of late by many tribulations and unprofitable dissensions, needs amendment of its laws and legal rules so that the peace and tranquillity of its people may be preserved. The statute that followed touched in its twenty-nine detailed chapters on a wide range of legal matters, from the jurisdiction of courts and the supremacy of royal justice in matters of land disputes, to wardships, charter repeal, and communal fines. The language was highly technical, concerning procedure, precedent, and jurisdiction. It was not a statute of fundamental principle like the Magna Carta, but it began a long process of statutory reform that would carry on until the end of the century. For Edward, twenty-eight years old and approaching the prime of life, the world was still a place for making war rather than law. Paradoxically, now that the realm was beginning a long process of healing, it had less to offer him. Peace had been made both with the rebel barons and with the Welsh, and Henry III had settled back into making expensive plans for a new tomb for Edward the Confessor at Westminster Abbey, to which the saint's body would be transferred on October thirteenth, twelve 1269. This left few opportunities for the prince and his friends to further their military reputations. Edward, his brother Edmund, and his cousin Henry of Almain jointly sponsored an edict allowing tournaments to be held in England but this was still not quite enough to sate their appetites for military adventure. If Edward wished to continue his soldierly career, he would have to look farther afield, to the Holy Land. Ever since 1267 King Louis the Ninth had been planning a new crusade, due to leave Europe in 1270, with the aim of beating back the advances of the Mamluk Sultan Baybars, who had pushed deep into what remained of the Christian states in Outremer, this for edward was a field of war in which he could gild his reputation deeply intoxicated by the promise of glory in the east he scraped together cash from whatever sources he could in an effort to fit out a crusader army this included taking a seventeen thousand pound loan from louis the ninth himself repayable from the revenues of bordeaux after easter in twelve seventy edward and his fellow would-be crusaders succeeded with the utmost effort in convincing the knights of the shire gathered in a highly sceptical parliament to grant them a crusader tax. The price was a renewal of the Magna Carta, and a limitation on Jewish money-lending, which gave the shire landowners enough respite from debt to be able to afford their contributions to Edward's adventure. From the end of May England sprang into action, and Edward prepared to depart. He submitted to arbitration to settle a long-running and bitter dispute that had blown up between himself and Gilbert, Earl of Gloucester. He put his lands into trust under a committee headed by his uncle, Richard, Earl of Cornwall, and since his wife, Eleanor of Castile, was determined to come on crusade with him, he also named Richard guardian of his three young children, John, aged four, Henry, aged two, and the baby called Eleanor. Finally, on August twentieth, 1270, the Royal Crusading Party set sail from Dover, leaving the cares of England far behind them, and headed toward the dusty lands of the East. This audiobook is continued on Disc 9. The Plantagenets by Dan Jones Continued. Disc 9. Part 4. Age of Arthur. 1263-1307 1263-1307 Now are the islanders all joined together, and Albany reunited to the royalties of which King Edward is proclaimed lord. Cornwall and Wales are in his power, and Ireland the Great at his will. Arthur had never the fiefs so fully. The Chronicle of Peter Langtoft of Bridlington King at Last Edward's crusade started under a cloud. He travelled to the Holy Land via a familiar path, through the south of France to Sicily, graveyard of his father's ambition, with the intention of moving on to Outremer via Cyprus. Before he had even reached Sicily, however, he discovered that the crusade as a pan-European venture had begun to unravel. Louis IX's army was travelling several weeks ahead of Edward's, and when Louis passed through Sicily, he met up with his younger brother Charles of Anjou, who had succeeded where Henry III had failed and claimed the Sicilian throne. While Edward was still marching through France, Charles managed to convince his brother Louis to divert his mission from Outremer to Tunis, where various enemies of Sicily were hiding from justice. The French set sail, assuming an easy victory but just days after landing on the North African coast, Louis IX died of a plague that swept through the French army. In shock, Charles led the crusade back to Sicily, only for the majority of the French fleet to be smashed by a storm while in harbour at Trapani. Edward, Henry of Valmaine, and the rest of the English arrived in Sicily in November 1270 to find the French in utter disarray. They wintered on the island, hoping that the spring might bring better fortune, but they were helpless when in January 1271 Louis's timid twenty-five-year-old son, now King Philip III, decided that Providence was against the French, and leading his men overland through Italy back to Paris, turned for home. Edward, however, was determined. When spring arrived he sent Henry of Almain back to ensure that the new French king did not attempt to threaten his lands in Gascony, then set out with his remaining men for Outremer. They arrived in mid-May. Just more than a year later Edward found himself in the heart of the labyrinthine politics of the Middle East. Christian Outremer had dwindled almost into oblivion. Frankish rule was in a parlous way. Despite Richard, Earl of Cornwall's efforts to reinstate control over Jerusalem during the 1240s, and Louis IX's massive expenditure fortifying the city of Caesarea at the same time, Most of the great cities of Christian Palestine had since fallen to Mamluk invaders. Caesarea and Jerusalem were in infidel hands, so too were Antioch and the supposedly impregnable crusader fortress the Crac des Chevaliers, whose soaring walls had resisted the hammering of trebuchets, but which had fallen to trickery. What remained of the kingdom was ruled from Acre, a demoralized city surrounded by hostile country and dreading any day the arrival of a Mamluk army thousands strong beneath its walls. It was clear from the outset that Edward's crusade was never destined to be much more than a sortie into a hopeless battlefield. The Christians were done for, and the days of great triumphs before the walls of the most spectacular cities of the Middle East were over. The main enemy to the Muslim forces of Palestine was now no longer the Frankish Knights of the West, but the terrifying Mongol horsemen who attacked them from the north and east. Edward and his companions found not a vast war to be joined, but a diplomatic jigsaw to be puzzled over. Yet Edward stayed for more than a year, organizing sorties into Muslim territory, exchanging letters with the Mongol leader Abaga Khan in Maragay, a city some seven hundred miles from Arka, and welcoming the occasional arrival of fresh troops from the west, "'including a party led by his brother Edmund. "'He was determined to make the best of his crusade. "'On the evening of June seventeenth, 1272, his thirty-third birthday, "'Edward lay in bed with his wife in his private chambers in Arco. "'As he drifted into sleep, he had much to contemplate. "'His small band of men had suffered horribly from heat and dysentery.' the Mamluk leader Baibars had vastly superior forces and supplies. Hugh III, the titular King of Jerusalem, was more inclined to peace than war, and the previous month had signed a ten-year peace with Baibars, which restricted Edward's hopes of glory still further. Edward had been furious when the treaty was agreed to, he had refused to become a party to it, quite likely he was still brooding over this as he fell asleep. What happened to Edward that evening soon became the stuff of legend. As he slept a messenger arrived claiming to be a renegade diplomat, a turncoat from bybars bearing lavish gifts, and ready to give up his own side's secrets. Whatever message he gave Edward's servants and guards must have sounded both urgent and convincing, for they woke the sleeping prince and asked him to meet his visitor. Edward staggered out of his sleeping chamber and met the man while still wearing his night-clothes. As it transpired the messenger wished to give Edward a very special birthday gift, a death-blow. Edward's position as the only non-signatory to the peace deal had made him a dangerous presence, whom Bybars wished to be rid of. The messenger rushed at Edward with a dagger, attempting to stab him in the hip, but Edward, no mean fighter, was up to the task. The Saracen met him and stabbed him on the hip with a dagger, making a deep, dangerous wound, wrote the chronicler known as the Templar of Tyre. The Lord Edward felt himself struck, and he struck the Saracen a blow with his fist on the temple, which knocked him senseless to the ground for a moment. Then the Lord Edward caught up a dagger from the table which was in the chamber, and stabbed the Saracen in the head and killed him. In hand-to-hand combat there were few who could match the long-limbed Englishman. Nevertheless, when he rose from his opponent's dying body, Edward realized that the blow he had received was a serious one. As attendants rushed to the scene, it was feared that the weapon might be poisoned. Legend has it that Eleanor of Castile tried to suck the venom from her husband's wound, though as it turned out, the dagger was almost certainly poison-free. There was still a real risk of infection, though, which could lead to the same sort of agonizing, gangrenous death that Richard I had suffered at Chalut-Chabrol. Edward was saved from a similar fate by a more skillful surgeon, who cut away the rotting flesh that festered around his wound. He took time to recuperate before he and Eleanor of Castile, together with their young daughter Joan, who had been born in Arca, departed Outremer for Europe in late September. They stopped in Sicily on their way home before travelling to the Italian mainland for Christmas. It was there that they were met by English messengers bearing sad news. Henry the third had died in November, aged sixty-five, following a short illness. After a magnificent funeral, he had been buried in the tomb vacated by Edward the Confessor's recent translation. After one of the most remarkable apprenticeships in his family's eventful history, Edward I. was now king. He took his time returning to England. Trusting the government of his kingdom to ministers such as Robert Burnell, Edward stayed abroad to enjoy the fruits of his glamorous crusader reputation. He joined in French tournaments, paid homage to Philip III for his French lands, and settled the rumblings of rebellion in Gascony. Then, during the dog days of summer, he sailed for England, his coronation day set for Sunday, August nineteenth, twelve seventy four. Edward alighted at Dover on August fourth, setting foot on home soil for the first time in nearly four years. He returned to a country that had waited patiently for him and that now acclaimed him in style. There had been plenty of time to prepare for his arrival. Edward was the first king to be crowned in more than half a century there was a whole new royal family to welcome at the coronation queen eleanor was in the early stages of her tenth pregnancy with a daughter margaret who would be born in twelve seventy five after the long and troubled reign of henry the third here was a brand-new generation of royal power and people to welcome The citizens of London, despite, or perhaps because of their acrimonious history with Edward, used the occasion to produce a festival of show and wealth. "'When Edward thrives, behold!' wrote one enthusiastic Londoner. "'He shines like a new Richard!' Unfortunately no detailed accounts of the ceremony survive, but it is known that the city was draped in gold cloth and that there was pageantry and mass celebration in the streets, as the king and his entourage rode into the city. Edward most likely processed from the Tower of London to the Palace of Westminster on the day before his coronation, before staying overnight in the painted chamber, richly decorated with biblical images and scenes from his family's history. The abbey would have been packed with magnates from England and its neighbours as Edward processed toward a giant wooden stage at the crossing of the church. They would have watched him make an offering at the altar of two gold figurines, one of St. Edward the Confessor and another of St. John the Evangelist. Then he made the same coronation oath that his ancestors had sworn. In what was now time-honoured fashion Edward promised to protect the church, to do justice to all men, to abolish evil customs, and to protect the rights of the crown. Unlike many of his predecessors, as Edward swore these things to a packed abbey, he meant every word. Edward's first priority was the oath he swore to protect the rights of the crown. Almost as soon as celebrations were complete, royal servants began a survey of royal rights in England that was conducted on a gigantic scale, comparable only to the doomsday book of William I's reign. It was known as the Hundred Rolls Inquiries because it concentrated on the hundreds, the smaller subdivisions of the English shires, which were used for administrative and judicial purposes at a local level. Between November 1274 and March 1275, every hundred in England received a visit from royal commissioners, who put detailed questions before local juries, about the Lord King's rights and liberties which have been taken away, and the excessive demands of the sheriffs, coroners, escheaters, and other of the Lord King's bailiffs, and of any other bailiffs whosoever appertaining belonging to the Lord King in any way, in the third year of King Edward's reign, 1274-1275. to This at least was the purpose laid out in the text of the enrolled returns that collated the information that the commissioners gathered. The hundred rolls' inquiries were massively wide-ranging and extremely detailed. They were the first great project undertaken by Edward's new Chancellor, Robert Burnell, now the Bishop of Bath and Wells, and a trusted, highly capable diplomat. Burnell had governed England during Edward's absence on crusade, and he was to oversee much of the governance and administrative reform of England until his death in 1292. The commissioners he appointed collected vast amounts of material, ranging from examples of appalling abuses of power, beatings, torture, and illegal imprisonment by royal officials cropped up in some places, to comical, harebrained brained schemes. The Sheriff of Essex was accused of having plotted to release flying cockerels carrying incendiary bombs over London during the Troubles in 1267. They produced far more information about wrongdoing and royal rights than could manageably be dealt with, and even when a general heir was sent out to punish the crimes uncovered, it was clear that the King could not successfully prosecute every deviant royal official in the land. Still, the keen investigations into wrongdoings conveyed the message to everyone in England that the new King was deeply committed to shaking out the corruption among royal officials that had blighted Henry III's reign, and that had so animated the knightly class in particular. The point of the Hundred Rolls Inquiries was more their symbolic value than their practical use they showed that Edward had learned lessons from the baronial reform programs of the 1250s, and had taken to heart the spirit of the provisions of Oxford. By adopting and expanding the program under the royal banner, Edward made an immediate statement about his reign. He would be the king who remedied ills of his own accord. Although he did not share his father's instinctive dislike of political reform, Edward shared with him an extraordinary capacity for spending money. He had returned from the Holy Land with debts amounting to more than £100,000, much of which was owed to Italian bankers. Simply to manage a debt of this magnitude would require political consensus and financial innovation, and given the ambitious plans that Edward would shortly unveil for an even more expensive and ambitious foreign policy than his father's, he would need the community of the realm behind him. Legally, financially, and politically, England and Britain were to be transformed. The first area of transformation would be Wales. A NEW ARTHUR One of the greatest popular crazes in thirteenth-century Europe was for the legends of King Arthur. Reflected in the art, literature, and tourist industry of the day, Arthurian lore had the power to excite, inspire, and entertain men and women everywhere from Sicily to Scotland. Few men were more excited by the stories and supposed relics of Arthur than the new king, Edward I. The legend of Arthur, for we now know that Arthur belongs chiefly to the realm of imagination and not to history, had been a part of European literary tradition since the early ninth century, when stories were exchanged of